All right. Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. Before we do that, though, I just wanted to clarify something. I am wearing green, and it's St. Patrick's Day, so nobody can pinch me, okay? So I just want to make sure you understood that. But I'm also a Protestant. A lot of people don't realize this. The Irish flag is green and orange. It's unity between Catholics and Protestants. So I'm wearing an orange watch band as well <laughs> to represent the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. So I just wanted to clarify that up front. Um, all joking aside, one of the cool things about being a Christian is you can kind of look back and say, I have a heritage, like I come from this people. Um, sometimes those are happy memories, right? Sometimes you come from a great family and you can remember that and enjoy that, come from a great place. I was born in Texas, so of course I look back on that with pride. Um, but sometimes you come from a kind of rough place or a hard history. What's beautiful is in Christ, we, we have the ability to criticize our own culture because now we're adopted into a new culture. We're now in the family of God through Jesus. So now our ultimate identity is being sons and daughters of God. Uh, and so no matter where you come from, whether it's good and bad, as Christians we can say, man, finally I've arrived. I'm in the real family now. And no matter where I came from, this is better. I can enjoy some of the good things from my past. I can critique some of the bad things from my past. But I'm thankful for what God's doing in my life now. And so we gather as people from all these different tribes and places and backgrounds to say, Jesus is our hope. And his family, his tribe, being a part of what he's doing is what unifies us together. Um, so we're going to look at the scriptures as a way of, of showing our unity, saying we want to get to know Jesus better. We're in the Gospel of John, so if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to the Gospel of John. We're studying in this series, Who is Jesus? We're trying to understand him better, getting to know the Savior that set us free. And so this week, as we continue through the Gospel of John, we're going to be in John chapter 8. You can open up to John chapter 8. It's around page 891 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. So if you want to grab one of those Bibles, uh, maybe you've got a device you could look it up or look up in the black Bible, or maybe you've got your own Bible. What we want to do is just kind of be a community where we are in the habit of opening the Scriptures week after week, where we just open it up and we're like, Lord, what do you have for me this week? So this week we're in John chapter 8. We're talking about light. Jesus is going to stand up and say, I'm the light of the world. And all of us recognize our kind of basic need for light. Although I think it's interesting, we live in a time in history where we seldom go without light, right? Most of us carry a flashlight with us now, with phones and different devices. I can remember a time as a child when people didn't always have a flashlight in their pocket, right? You didn't have light with you everywhere you went. Um, many of you have been in the situation where you're in a new place, you get up in the middle of the night, maybe at a hotel room or at a friend's house or some foreign place. You get up to go to the bathroom or whatever, and it's dark, and you run into something, and it hurts, right? We've all had that experience. We need light to direct us. So there's just a basic human need for light. And the scriptures, of course, point to light in, in many ways. This idea of light being a lamp to our path is one of the ideas of, of what light can do. But we also know from biology, light helps things to grow. We also know from from psychology, that if you don't have light, right, if you've ever lived up somewhere north where the sun doesn't shine as much, sometimes people get depressed. We're wired to need sunlight, right? So it's in this context of, of this world that God has made that Jesus says he's the ultimate light. So I'm going to read for us from John chapter 8, verse 12. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to go back and look at all the verses around this kind of first half of John 8, but I'm going to start in verse 12 here with the big statement about light. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. They always had to have two witnesses. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. We'll stop there, but I just want to note that Jesus continually, he's doing this more and more in the Gospel of John, continually draws his authority back to his oneness with the Father, where the Gospel of John began in John chapter 1. Jesus was there with the Father in the beginning. Jesus is one with God. We talk about this doctrine formally as the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this picture of light as well reflected in John chapter 1. And when you go all the, back, all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, it's an echo between Genesis 1 and John 1. This idea of God being the creator, God being the source of light. And then the Bible ends at the very end of Revelation with the reality that we won't need the sun or the moon anymore when we're with God because He is the ultimate light that we needed. So this idea of God being our source of light goes through the whole Scripture. And Jesus is saying He is the embodiment of all of this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this in more detail. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say this morning, that your spirit would, would fill us and strengthen us. Um, God, we thank you that you love us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about Jesus being the light of the world, that's kind of the center of this section. We're going to basically cover verses 1 through verse 29, 30. So we'll, we'll look at the next half of, of John chapter 8 next week. Uh, but when we look at this, verse 12 is right in the middle. And this is the big idea. Jesus is the light of the world. And it comes in the context, if you remember where we were last week, of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast, we talked about it was an agricultural feast where they remembered God's providing for them. They would remember back in the day when they were brought out of Exodus slavery that God provided for them in the wilderness. He fed them. He clothed them. He gave them water. He gave them food. He protected them. And we talked about how they tied that then to the fall and remembering that God was still providing for them by giving them rain and crops. And so last week he talked about being the living water. And so he's in this festival where they're celebrating that God takes care of them. God loves them. God saves them. And there's a lot of water imagery. And so last week, in the middle of the water imagery, he says, I'm the living water, right? All this that you're celebrating this festival, Jesus is saying it's ultimately about him. Now, this festival is, is coming to a close. It's also full of light imagery, right? Think about like jamming together every, you know, fall festival, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, jamming it all into one big festival, right? They celebrated a lot of things in this festival. This was uh, what most people would say, most archaeologists and scholars would say, this was the most popular festival the Jews would celebrate. And they would also celebrate light. They would light these giant candelabras, the menorah things in the temple, and they would have this big celebration. They would have dancing and music and this big light festival. And so now Jesus is tying himself to the festival again, saying he's the light of the world. Why do we need light? 
Can't we just live life on our own? Do we really need Jesus to be our light? In the text, he's going to point out three reasons we need him. These three reasons are that we corrupt religion. That's the number one uh, reason that we're going to look at. We need light. We need Jesus to be our light because we corrupt religion. The second thing we're going to look at is that we judge superficially. That's just the way we are. We judge superficially. We, We don't see things for their true depth. We just look at the surface of things. We judge superficially. And then the last thing that we're going to see is that we are killing ourselves with sin. We're killing ourselves, and we need the light of Jesus to show us a different way. So the first thing we want to look at is this idea that we corrupt religion. And we're going to look at a story that is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but it's kind of a quirky story because if you look at the footnotes, it says the earliest manuscripts don't have this story. And so just as an aside, I want to invite you into conversation about that. If you're one of those people that kind of wants to study more about how we got our Bible today, how things were included, how we understand uh, what's the old manuscripts and all that, I'd love to talk to you more about it. I just want to kind of give this big idea that this book, this collection of writings, is the most historically reliable document in the history of the world. Not just by a, a close margin, but by a wide margin. We have more ancient copies of this than any other old document that exists. It's supernaturally bizarre. We, we just have a, an embarrassment of riches with ancient documents. So number one, we, we know from a just earthly, physical, fleshly, uh, you know, academic standard, this is the most reliable ancient historical document that exists. So we know we can trust this document because in that earthly sense, it's reliable, but we also know it, it testifies to us about the story of who Jesus is, right? So ultimately, the, the truth of the gospel is what draws us to this book and to these stories. Then the other thing I want us to understand is that when scholars look at this story, most believe this is a true story. They're just not sure if it belongs here, right? It actually looks like the style of Luke's writing, just some of the key words that Luke uses. It doesn't have the same language how John uses, and so We have like old copies of John that doesn't have the story in it, but we do have old copies of Luke that does have the story. So there's just some confusion about this story. The other thing I would tell you just to kind of reassure you, like, oh my gosh, what, you know, what's happening with the story? The other thing is that what Jesus does in the story, it's the exact same kinds of things that Jesus does in every other story about Jesus, right? So there's this beauty, this consistency here that, man, if, if the most confusing little section of scripture we have is in line with every other piece of scripture we have, there's a great assurance we have with that. So let me read this story. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Here we see the corruption of religion. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, "Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her." And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a beautiful story. One of the reasons we we believe that this is 
been held on to even when we don't have it in all the old copies is it's just a, such a beautiful p- picture of what Jesus always does. And, and in this story, Jesus is shining his light on the corruption of religion. And I think in this story, we've got two corruptions of religion that we see commonly again and again in Scripture, right? What are sometimes referred to as, as legalism and indulgence, right? And, and so our application for this is, what does it look like for us to recognize either legalism or indulgence in our own life and allow the light of Jesus to shine on that? Um, have, you, have you ever gone into a basement? If you grew up here, you haven't. But if you grew up somewhere else, gone into a basement or maybe a garage and you turn on the light and critters scurry away, Right? The light scares away the critters. It's a pretty common thing. Um, the gross things that come out in the dark don't like the light. And we are often gross in what we do with religion. We often twist religion. And Jesus comes in and he just shines this light on it. I can remember another example of this, the presence of Jesus shining light on this corruption. I can remember this one particular professor I had in seminary, and I just felt uncomfortable around him. And the reason I felt uncomfortable around him was that he just kind of bled Jesus. He just bled Bible. Like everything he said, he was so nice and so holy and so righteous. I, I just felt gross, right? Like I felt unholy in his presence. And here we see Jesus' perfect holiness just kind of blasting away the fake religion of the Pharisees, the legalism. But what is legalism? Legalism is saying, I'm going to take laws, and I'm not going to look at all of God's law. I'm going to take my favorite portions of God's law. I'm going to kind of tribalize that and make that uh, boundaries for membership in my inner circle. And I'm going to say, I'm better at this than you are, and so I'm better than you, and now God owes me blessing because I've kept these laws. And Jesus is continually throughout the Gospels exposing that with his light, saying, "You're, you're not actually holy. You don't actually love people. You're just keeping a few external rules. You're just trying to compete with others and and say, I'm better than these people. And Jesus exposes that corruption of religion. We all have that within us. We all have that desire, right? Like take whatever you're good at and you have this temptation to say, hey, I'm better than everybody else because I do this. And we have this human ability to ignore the things we're bad at, right? I'm not really that bad. I'm good. Well, look at how much better I am than that guy or that girl, right? And that's legalism. That's one of the ways that we corrupt religion. There's this other way that we corrupt religion, and it's the religion of indulgence, right? I mean, in our world, you could basically break all religion into two categories. There's the kind of legalism of traditional conservative religion, and then there's the indulgence of follow your own heart, romantic worldview, right? Uh, My wife and I just watched a 90s movie this weekend. It was preaching the romantic worldview, right? If you just follow your heart, everything will be okay. That's the religion of indulgence. And that's another corruption of religion. Jesus says neither one of those are quite right. Um, Look at what he does. He he takes their law and holds them to an even higher standard of their law, right? They're like, well, the law says we should stone this person. We know they don't really care about God's holiness. Why? Because they only bring the woman. They're victimizing the woman, which sadly happens often in traditional cultures. They're victimizing the woman and they don't care about the man. Because if there were witnesses to this sin, I don't want to go into details, but there were witnesses to a man and a woman, okay? And they let the man go and they brought in the woman. And so there's 
there's a clarity here about the situation that, yeah, they didn't really care about enforcing the law. They were just trying to trap Jesus. And of course, it, it indicates that in the text as well. So these guys aren't really about fulfilling God's law and God's holiness. They're about showing themselves holy and pushing Jesus out because he's a threat to their power. What does Jesus do? He says, okay, well, here you go. If you're without sin, then cast the first stone. He actually says, all right, let's do this. Let's obey the law, but let's do it in a holy way. Those of you who are not guilty, go ahead and cast the first stone. And they, they were exposed. And the rats, the roaches scurried off, right? Here's the other thing, though. Jesus exposes the religion of indulgence because a lot of people, especially in our culture, where we live with the romantic worldview, right? Follow your heart, do what feels good. God just wants you to be happy. You've heard those phrases before. Don't judge, you can't judge me. Don't be judgy, we hear that all the time. And here Jesus says, go and sin no more. He doesn't excuse her indulgence. He doesn't excuse her sin. He forgives her and then says, go and sin no more. The gospel says, you cannot be saved by keeping your tribal rules. That's not real holiness. All people have sin, and they need the righteousness of Christ to be given to them as a gift. The gospel also says when Jesus forgives you for your sin, he wants you to start obeying him. He wants you to start doing what's right. And Jesus continually throughout the gospels would say, go and sin no more. It's not an excuse to just indulge and do whatever you want to. It's forgiveness, transformation, adopting you into the family of God by faith in Christ, making you his and then saying, now live like you're a part of this family. Now start bearing a family resemblance. Start following Jesus. That's the call. My question for you is, which one do you relate to more? I like to do this in a lot of different Bible studies I've been a part of. When we talk about uh, the story of the older brother and the younger brother, that's another kind of comparison of these two ideas. Which one do you relate to more? Do you relate to the people who have their order and structure, and like the Pharisees are like, man, I've got my stuff in order, and Jesus is making me nervous right? Jesus is bothering me. He's messing up my order. I've got a system that works for me, right? Do you, do you relate to that one? Or do you relate to the woman caught in sin? And Jesus is saying, go, go and sin no more. Sin is not the place to find your meaning and your happiness. Go and sin no more. Follow me. Trust me. Which one do you relate to more? Jesus calls us to repent of our, our corruptions of religion. We turn religion either into legalistic rules or we turn religion into following our own heart, doing our own thing. Jesus says, follow me. The next thing we're going to see is in John 8, 12 through 20, that we judge superficially. It's going to be this kind of back and forth. It was a little confusing. This is the main section I read in the beginning. This, can, this uh, section here, Jesus is saying, you judge according to the flesh, but I judge truthfully. And so Jesus, again, is kind of establishing his authority, being one with the Father, saying, I know the truth, you don't know the truth, an indicator that you don't know the truth is you judge things superficially. You just kind of look on the outside of things. So a question for us is, do you judge superficially? Um, or do you have always true, right, decision-making process where you always see through the truth and the heart of things? Which is, don't raise your hand. Um, don't condemn yourself publicly here. Okay, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So again, remember, big festival, biggest part of the year. They're celebrating God's light. Probably they're remembering and quoting and singing songs about the stories in the Exodus, about how the, the pillar of fire would lead them in the desert. They're probably thinking about the cloud and fire that descended upon the Holy of Holies in the temple, the presence of God mediated through light. And Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light. I'm the real light. This is a shocking thing for him to say. 
He's inviting us to see him as, as ultimate in a an intense, crazy sort of way. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Are you tired of, of bumping your shins into the coffee table at night? Jesus says, if you follow me, you won't, you won't have the darkness anymore. And he's echoing what we see in the Psalms. One of my favorite Old Testament Psalms is Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And that Psalm goes on and on about the Scriptures, right? And it talks about how the Scriptures, God's Word, is a light to our past. Psalm 119 Verse 105 says it this way, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Remember, we all have little tiny flashlights we carry around with us. They didn't back then, right? Light was more scarce. He's saying your word is like this scarce and wonderful and beautiful gift that lights my path in the darkness so I don't stumble, so I don't fall, so I don't get hurt. Do you see God's word that way? As light, as something that guides you, helps you, directs you? Psalm 119 has another verse later on, verse 130. It says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So this idea of, of kind of safety and guidance with a lamp to your feet in the darkness, but there's also this idea of teaching you, right? We lack understanding. We're simple. And God's Word directs us. Do you see God's Word is informing you and teaching you and directing you so you can know what's true and what's not true? Jesus says, you need that. Because you judge things superficially. That's a problem that all humans have. We judge on the surface instead of judging the heart. So here's where he goes into more detail about that judging issue. Verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're trying to catch him on a technicality, right? Um, now, just to be clear, the Old Testament doesn't say, you can never declare anything true unless there are two, two witnesses, right? There's no verse that says that. They're kind of trying to take this um, these ideas of like court witnessing, of testimony, if there's a crime, you have to have two witnesses. That was in the Old Testament law. And they're applying this then to him saying anything true. So it's kind of a technicality here. Verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. He's saying, yeah, you might need testimony of two witnesses in court, but that doesn't mean nothing's ever true unless you have two witnesses. He's like, I know the truth. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. You don't know where I came from. You don't know me. You don't know my connection to the Father. You're not getting it. You don't have spiritual sight. He goes on to verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, that word is a little tricky because in modern English, judge, we, we take often to mean condemnation. Um, and we just had that word, right, with, with the woman caught in adultery. He says, I don't condemn you. That's a different word. So condemn is more of a, a court, judge, gavel kind of word, whereas this word judge is more of a general word in Greek. It's more of a just making any decision at all. So again, as modern Christians, we get mixed up about this. You know, you can't judge me. We should never judge. Judge not lest you be judged, right? We like to take all the verses in the Scripture that say we shouldn't do that, and we take them out of context, because there's times to do that and times not to do that. The way I would summarize it is, yes, of course, we want to make right judgments about life and stuff and people and things that are good and bad. We're supposed to make those judgments. That's a biblical concept. We're just not supposed to be judgmental. So when you read Matthew especially, Jesus clarifies this with the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were legalists, and they were judgmental. That doesn't mean we should never make any judgments at all. And even here, Jesus is not saying... I judge no one in an absolute sense because he goes on and explains ways that he does judge. What he's saying is, 
I don't judge superficially like you do, right? So let's read it again. You judge according to the flesh. I don't do that, is what he's saying. You decide, you discern, you see things, is what the word means, according to the flesh. I don't see things that way, Jesus is saying. I don't discern that way. I don't discern according to the flesh. Verse 16, yet even if I do make decisions, judgments, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So earlier he's like, yeah, I don't need two witnesses. I'm just speaking the truth, right? Now he's saying, but you know what? I actually do have two witnesses. I don't need them, but I've got another witness. It's my Father. My heavenly Father bears witness about me. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, well, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to start hearing more and more language about arresting, right? We saw last week all this confusion in John chapter 7. People that wanted to arrest him, people that didn't want to arrest him, people that wanted to kill him, people that weren't sure about him. What's happening in the whole book of John here is the conflict is is heating up. There's going to be more and more tension, more and more scary moments, more and more tense moments. And here John is saying this was one of those tense moments. Again, these guys wanted to take him down, but it, it wasn't his time yet, so it didn't happen, right? John's saying his time hadn't come. His time's going to come at the end of the book when Jesus dies on the cross, but, but it wasn't there yet. So we judge superficially. My wife and I were just thinking about this the other day. We, were, we went hiking at Dana Peak Park, um, and we decided we were going to scale the peak, right? One of the great mountains of central Texas. And we were walking around the peak, and we were trying to pick our, our way of ascent, right? Like, how are we going to get up this big mountain? And there's one side I'd never climbed before, and I was like, I don't know, that looks, that looks bad, that looks a little dangerous, because my wife's foot had been sore. I was like, I don't want to take you up, you know, real loose gravel or whatever. Let's try to find a, a more smooth path. And so we worked around the other side. We went up, and we kind of circled. We just followed the trail, circled around, and came back the first side where we thought it was too hard to climb. And we came down, and we are like, oh, that wasn't that bad, right? And my wife just made this comment. She's like, yeah, it's interesting. From a distance... Things look totally different than when you get up close. And she was just, just noting, right? I was like, ooh, I can use this for my sermon. She was just noting <laughs> how, you know what? We do this so often in life. We see something from a distance. We make a judgment about it and say, I know, I know what that is. I've seen that before. That's good. That's bad. That's okay. That's not okay. We, we make these judgments when if we had actually just gotten closer, we would have seen this path. But from a distance, we just saw trees and rocks no path. We got closer, we could see a path. This happens all the time. In the Old Testament, there's an example of this in the anointing of King David as the new king over Israel. The first king was King Saul. And if you know the Old Testament, this, these stories are found in First and Second Samuel. If you know the Old Testament, that first king that Israel picked, why did they pick him? You know, Saul was good looking and he was tall. They picked him because he was big and handsome. He was the giant of Israel. He was a good fighter. He was good looking. But that wasn't really enough, right? His heart wasn't true to God and things went badly. And so when Samuel the prophet goes to pick the next king, he goes to Jesse. He's told, go to Jesse and and pick the son who's going to be the next king. God tells him to go out there. and, And Jesse's like, all right, here are my boys. Jesse doesn't even bring David in, right? 
because David's too young or too ugly or too small or whatever it is, on the superficial level, he doesn't fit into what they think a king should be. And the Scripture is very clear. God judges the heart, not the flesh, not the outside. Jesus says here, you know what y'all's problem is? You're judging according to the flesh. What are ways that we do that? What are ways that we judge things just by the circumstances, right? That's, that's a struggle for me. It's easier, I think, for me to do this with people because part of the way God's wired me, I, I just tend to like people, even if, even if you're weird, hard to get along with, right? I just tend to like people more than most people do. And so I feel like this is kind of easier in my flesh to love people and look through to the heart. But, but what about for you? Are there situations where you just you revert to judging according to the flesh? I know this when I'm just planning things, right? When I'm strategizing, just work at the church, we're planning what we're going to do. You look at things and you're like, that won't work, that will work. You're judging according to the flesh and you forget that the God that we serve is the God who works supernaturally. Paul talks about this in ministry context. He says, well, yeah, this, this guy watered, this guy planted, but God makes it grow, right? God's the one that actually makes things happen. Jesus references the same concept in his parables about the kingdom. He says, things grow at night while we're sleeping. While we're not doing anything, God is making things grow spiritually. So there's this reality that God is involved in the world in a way that we can't often understand. The question is, are you going to repent of your superficial judgment and allow the light of the world, the light of Jesus, to inform your understanding? As the scriptures talk about in the Psalms, Psalm 119, another great psalmist, Psalm 36, says, by your light we see light. We can't even see light here without your light to help us see light. There's this idea that we need God to guide us. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize your own need for God's guidance in your life? One of the ways that Christians do this is just by reading this book, gathering as Christians to, to understand what this book says, submitting yourself to what Jesus has asked you to do. But let's not miss that there's something even more important than aligning yourself with God's instruction. And that's aligning yourself with the person of Christ himself. So we believe that this book is important, not just because it's true, but because it's the testimony of Jesus. Because this book is about Jesus, that's what makes it important. That's what makes it guidance for us, what makes it light for us. Jesus is the light of the world. So the next section, what we're going to see is that we need the light of the world because we are killing ourselves with sin. We're killing ourselves with sin. This is another area where we walk in darkness, right? He says, if you follow me, I'm the light of the world, then you won't walk in darkness anymore. And here he, he turns up the heat and he says, there's a specific problem you have. You're, you're dying in your sin. Sin is killing you. Sin is a serious issue. And this is really important and timely for us because again, in our culture today, sin is no big deal, right? Sin for some is even an outmoded concept. We don't even like to think about the word sin, right? Like sin, that's old fashioned. But the scriptures are pretty clear. There are, there are things that are not according to God's will. God doesn't want you to do. Why does God not want you to do that? Because he loves you. He built you, right? Anybody ever put the wrong uh, kind of fuel in a gas tank of an engine? It does not go well, right? It can be a, a range of different varieties of, of tragedy to that engine, right? But it never works. And God knows how you were designed. He made you. And he wants you to live according to the design because he loves you. He's not just trying to ruin your fun. So John chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 21 through 29. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, so now he's talking to the believers, if you abide in my word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Wait, I skipped, that's the wrong verse. I was like, that's not right. I'm gonna make an appointment to go see the eye doctor soon, okay? Verse 21, it's at the top of my page. Okay, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going away, you'll seek me, and you're going to die in your sin. This is really harsh language, right? He's, he's being very bold with him. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? Just think about this in the situation. Have you ever had a spiritual conversation with someone and they like, don't hear what you're saying at all? This is what's happening here. Jesus is saying, your sin is killing you. You're going to die in your sin in there and this little tag on, and I'm going away. They fixate on the wrong part of the sentence, right? He's going away. Is he going to kill himself? They're all mixed up. They don't have spiritual sight. They're not seeing things that are exposed by the light of the world. He says, you're going to die in your sin, and they're all worried about the side reference of, I'm going away. They're like, is he going to kill himself? What's going on? What is he saying? Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This is an echo of Exodus chapter 3, especially in the Greek translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. This exact same Greek phrase is used, I am He. You remember in Exodus, God reveals Himself as the I am. I am who I am. It's translated sometimes in Greek as I am he. Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying he is Yahweh. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament. He's saying, come to me. I'm the only one that can save you. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 25, they're still fighting him. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. It's like, I've been telling you this for a long time. I'm, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the light of the world. I am He. You need me for life. Come to me for life. Stop trying to save yourselves from your, with your corrupt religion. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge or decide, but He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. They did not understand that He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus is saying, I keep telling you who I am. I'm one with the Father. You need to come to me if you want salvation. I keep telling you the same thing, but you're not listening. You're dying in your sin. It's killing you. I remember this, the little phrase in Matthew where Jesus comes to Jerusalem right before his death and he literally weeps over the city. He's like, if I, if I could just like gather you up like a mother hen. And he's sobbing over their rebellion, over their suicidal obsession with themselves, their corruption of religion, turning religion into a legalistic framework to do right things, to hold other people hostage, to hold God hostage, to say, I've done my religious duty, so God, you better do what I want now. You better bless me. Or holding God hostage with indulgence. 
saying, I'm seeking pleasure, I'm following my heart, I'm doing what I want. Now I better have fun and life and joy and pleasure because I'm doing what people say, doing what I'm made for, right? Jesus says, no, as you pursue sin in this way, you're killing yourselves. You're going to die in your sin. Sin, in its narrow definition, John 3.23 is helpful. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So sin, in its broad definition, I started with narrow. Its broad definition is falling short of the glory of God. Its narrow definition is just doing things differently than what God has asked you to do, right? Violating God's commandments. But in its broad definition in Romans 3.23, it's just falling short of the glory he made you for. And so Jesus is saying, that's killing us. That's, that's deadly to us. I grabbed a picture of a bottle of poison. Again, in our culture, you're going to be preached at. I'm going to use the word preach on purpose. Our culture continually preaches to us that doing what feels good brings us life. And I want to be careful because God is not against feeling good. It's just sometimes when we obsess over feeling good, it kills us. When we make that ultimate, we've made it into an idol. We've made it into a God that we think will save us. We think we'll be saved by feeling good. Or, like with the legalists here, saved by manipulating others, making ourselves feel good, by being more religious than the next guy. We pursue pleasure. We pursue position as ways to indulge ourselves. And it's killing us. He's saying it's poison. You're drinking poison. A friend was... Uh, sharing this one I've heard a million times about forgiveness, right? Bitterness is when you don't forgive someone. And when you have bitterness towards someone, uh, I think the way the phrase goes is it's like drinking poison yourself, hoping, hoping the other person gets killed. Have you all heard that phrase before? It's killing us. We're pursuing sin thinking there's life there. And Jesus is like, no, it's killing you. Come, come to me. Trust me. The way this exchange works, what we'll see in the end of John is Jesus dies on the cross for our sins as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, fulfilling every ritual of the Old Testament, fulfilling all the foreshadowing, all the broadcasting of the Old Testament that we need a sacrifice. Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice that brings us light, that brings us life. He says the only way to get out of the sin problem that you're stuck in is by trusting me. My question for you is what are the ways that You're trying to manage sin without Jesus. The Pharisees had a really elaborate system. And a lot of it was biblical. This is where it gets so confusing, right? Colossians 2 says that all of our our little practices of religion, of do not taste, do not touch, of what we call self-control, actually has no real power in restraining the selfish flesh, the indulgence of the flesh. A great verse about the way that our flesh is killing us is in 1 Peter 2.11. Go look this one up on your own time. Meditate on this one if you want to really be a weirdo, countercultural person in our modern culture. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, loved ones, you're loved in Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. She says, don't give in to the passions of your flesh. What does our culture say? Follow the passions of your flesh. That's the only road to happiness. The Bible says, now don't give in to those. That's not the road to happiness. Our, our culture is being destroyed, I think, specifically by sexual immorality. I, I think we see this happen in the breaking of every commandment, right? Just pick a commandment and we're killing ourselves. But particularly with sexual immorality. Because we're like, well, it feels good, so that should bring me life, right? 
and we're making no reference to what God calls us to. He says, no, it's waging war against your souls. This hunger, this passion, this lust of your flesh is not going to bring you life. It's going to hurt you. So again, please hear this. God is making this appeal because he loves you. He wants your joy more than you do. He loves you more than you do. He knows what's best for you. So he's saying, turn, turn from those lusts. Turn from this indulgence. Don't continue to die in your sin, but, but trust me. Jesus is saying, believe in me. There's this beautiful phrase where he says, you're not going to really know who I am until I've been lifted up. Do you see that? He says, there are all these things I want to explain to you. There's all these things I want to teach you. Verse 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then later on, Jesus said in verse 28, when you have lifted me up, lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. So he gives us two things here. One is I'll be lifted up. The other is believe in me, right? And the lifted up is a really beautiful picture because Jesus Paul tells us in Philippians, is literally exalted to the place of his kingship over the universe through his death and resurrection. And so this is kind of a play on words. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up. They don't understand that he's literally, literally going to be lifted up on a cross. And through being lifted up on a cross, which is going to throw him into the grave in death for us as the ultimate sacrifice, he will rise again and be ultimately lifted up. Jesus is saying it's through that cross, through that death and resurrection, my ultimate exaltation, that you'll know that I am he, that you'll find salvation, that you'll be able to believe in me and no longer die in your sins. This is a beautiful picture. We try to manage sin with our circumstances, with self-help books. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the only ultimate solution for that sin. And then that light of the world will move through me then light will, will be in you and you'll have light to share with others. We live in, in crazy times. St. Francis had this quote that I think is really helpful. All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. Like, yeah, we're not light to the same degree that Jesus is, but Jesus says we will be light. And all the darkness in the world can't, ex- can't extinguish that, that little candle, right? Darkness can't stop light. Light just spreads. It's what it does. And God's going to continue to work through us, through the work of Jesus as the ultimate light. If you've stumbled around in the darkness, you know what that's like to be frustrated, to you know, bang your shin on something. Uh, but most of you, if you've lived in the same place very long, uh, you can get up in the middle of the night and walk around in the dark just fine, right? You grow accustomed to it. You get used to it. Uh, but then you have a friend come, and maybe you forget that your friend is going to need a light, night light, Right? Because it's easy for you. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that we're going to need to remember this. We're going to need to remember that Jesus is the ultimate light of the world, but he says we are also the light of the world. He says, let your light so shine among men that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. As, As we entrust ourselves to Jesus as the ultimate light of the world, we will become the light of the world. Are you going to hide it under a bushel? You're supposed to say, no, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, sorry, you don't know the, you don't know the VBS song. It's okay, I didn't, I didn't grow up in church either. So he says, you're going to be the light of the world because I'm the ultimate light of the world. Jesus says, come to me, and then you're going to have an impact on your friends and neighbor and your family and 
your workplace because he is supernaturally working through you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for the grace that you give us in Jesus. We pray that you would continue to to change us, to make us more like you. Help us to see our need for you. Help us to conform ourselves to you, to follow you, to trust you, to see you as the great I am that gives us life, that gives us light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.